friends, family, and guests, I want to invite you to spend a little time with us in the Word of God this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I ask that you would turn to one, open up your phone, your tablet, whatever you need uh, to to get there, and uh, we want to make sure that you're in Scripture with us this morning, but would you pray with me as we ask God to have His way in us today. Father, as we approach your word, thinking about this marvelous concept of baptism, God, and we, we want to understand it rightly, we want to live into it the way we're supposed to, and we need your power, your grace for that, to understand it well, and to live it out, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in many true ways, uh, we, we do what we are the things that we do, the things that we are interested in, the things that we pursue flow from our self-identity. And so this is why people that think really lowly of themselves sometimes hurt themselves, right? And this is why culture is so driven by identity. We are fascinated and driven completely by identity in, in culture. But people don't know what that identity is. And so people cling to their ethnic identity. And the highlight of the year is the ethnic parade that goes through the city and you wave the flag and you eat the food. Uh, Some people can only attend the church where it's my ethnicity, right? And I've, I've been there too. And there's a lot to celebrate about culture. And there's a lot to miss when you're outside of your culture and you don't have your foods and you don't have your music. There's a lot to miss there. But should that drive our identity? More and more, we're seeing people driven by their sexual identity, their gender identity. And if you don't like yours, now you can change it. But we've seen in previous sermons as well why that just sends you down a deeper hole, a darker hole. Because the truth of the matter is, underneath your ethnicity, underneath your gender, underneath where you grew up, underneath your favorite sports team, whatever whatever it is that you identify with, underneath all of that, is a broken sinner disconnected from our creator. That's what drives us. That's what drives our despair. That's what drives all of the things that we want to cling to for hope but keep coming up short. But what scripture talks about is there's a way to change your identity. And you can't change it from the outside in. It can't be done with a surgery. It can't be done by joining a Facebook group or getting rid of certain kinds of clothes and wearing a different kind of set of clothes. It's not about your wardrobe. It's not about necessarily hanging out with the right kind of people to become a different kind of person. It's an interior change. And brothers and sisters, that is what baptism is. Baptism is, I was this guy, and now I'm a different guy. That's baptism. Baptism is a rite of initiation into a covenant relationship with God where rather than being alienated from God and separated from God, you are now part of God's family. It's not like you're allowed to hang out near God's house. You went from alien status, stranger status, who are you? You have no business here. You can't get through the front gate all the way to a rightful seat at the family table. That's amazing. And I think for some of us, maybe even those of us who are Christians, we, that, that sometimes doesn't click. Where that's your identity. That's what unites us in Christ. 
So when we think about baptisms, oftentimes we think about controversies, the kinds of controversies that I tried to clear out of the way last week as much as possible. So if you're wondering about sprinkling versus immersion or dipping, if you're wondering about baby baptism, adult baptism, is he going to talk about that? No. Go to the online, check that out last week. I want to get underneath all of that. What does baptism mean in its essence? What does it mean whether you were dipped or sprinkled or baby or adult? What does baptism mean? That's what I want to get to because that's your identity. Back in Ephesians 4, we mentioned it last week when Paul says that we as Christians have been baptized into one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, that unity. People say, well, there's no unity in baptism because we all do it different ways. But the unity that he's talking about is what the outward symbol refers to inwardly. Not the water, the tank, what time of day it was, what the temperature was. Was it still water, running water, fresh water, salt water? Paul is talking about what it means inside the person, that it speaks directly to your identity, which is oneness with Christ for the Christian. A new person made alive in Christ. The physical water doesn't make you a new person. The physical water celebrates what happened to you. Someone may have even asked you that. What happened to you? You're not the guy I knew in college. You're not the person I knew in high school. What happened to you? We should get that question. (laughs) And our response shouldn't be, well, I started cleaning up my act. Well, I started going to church. Well, I started adopting good habits. While all those things might be true, your answer should be about your identity change because that's really what they're asking. What happened to you? Something did happen to me. I was this person, and now I'm another person. And so baptism means union with Christ, and union with Christ means that you now live a new life in Christ, a life of power over sin, power to do the righteous things, power to live into holiness, power to even care about what's holy when you could care less before. And I want to prove this to you. Baptism means union with Christ. And and because of that, baptism means new life, a life that looks different, seems different. People can tell it's different. It's a new life. You're a new creation. I want to prove that from four passages. We're going to do three of them real quick and then spend a little more time on the fourth one. So the first three I'm going to put up on the screen so you can just see it briefly. But here's the truth that they're all proving. I've got one point this morning. That when you are baptized into Christ, you are now a new person who lives by Christ. If you've been baptized into Christ, now you look like Christ, you act like Christ, you think like Christ, you've adopted his mind, his attitude, his spirit, his heart. You've been cleaned, created, recreated, and brought into a new life that you do things differently now because you're a Christian. Baptism means you've been brought into Christ And now you're a new person who lives by Christ. That's the point, and I'm going to prove it to you, I hope, from four passages. Let's look at the first three really quickly. And the first one's Romans 6. This is the typical passage I go to with most of our baptisms. I pull out Romans 6 to explain baptism really quick. Listen to what Paul is saying. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, I'm not talking to you You know, those of you who maybe are visiting church or interested in Christianity, I'm talking to those of you who have been baptized into Christ. And don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that 
just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Real quick, because that just sounds like a lot of Christianese to us sometimes, and it just, it just goes by in a big blur. Paul is saying, when you close your eyes and you imagine Jesus dying on that cross on Calvary, and he's dying there, gives up his last breath, and he's dead. Don't you know that when you were baptized into Christ, essentially, that was your death? That was your death. You should have paid a penalty. What did the thief on the cross say? We, we belong here. This guy doesn't. So how can Jesus tell him, today you'll be with me in paradise? By taking the death for that guy. The eternal weight of death, right? So Paul is saying when Jesus died on the cross, he died that death that you should have died, that, that condemnation death, that death that, that puts us under eternal weight of judgment forever, Christ took it for you. So his death became your death, and if his death became your death, guess what his resurrection became? Your resurrection. So you're not the same man anymore. You're not the same woman anymore. You're different now because you've died with Christ. He took your condemnation, and on the other side of that, you've become a different person. You've lived a resurrected life. This is why I think it's interesting that the Gospels describe Jesus walking around in his resurrection body, and they didn't recognize him. It was the same body. They spent all kinds of time with him, but he was different. And in a similar way, when you were resurrected in Christ, yeah, you didn't lose your basketball skills. You're not suddenly uninterested in whatever hobby you like to be interested in. You're not suddenly, you just switch from White Sox to Cubs, you know, just because you're saved, although some of you may have experienced that. I don't know. I'll stay out of it. The interests stay the same. Your skills stay the same. Your, your talent pretty much stays the same. I mean, you're imbued with spiritual gifts. That's empowering. You're the same person, but you're not the same person. Well, which one is it? I think in a real way, when you're baptized into Christ, friends start to have a hard time recognizing you. Your old crew starts feeling a little uncomfortable with you, not because you're doing anything intentionally to make them feel uncomfortable, but it's just uncomfortable for dead people to hang out with people that are now alive. Blind people to hang out with people that can see. Can't you see this? No, what are you talking about? You're really annoying. We like hanging out in the dark, and you're coming around with this flashlight all the time, and it hurts my eyes. Stop it. Brothers and sisters, they're not offended by you. They're offended by Christ. Don't take it personally. They're offended by Christ in you. So Paul says, I'm taking way too long on this, but he says we're buried in baptism into death. He's talking about baptism. In order that, this is verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might what? Walk in newness of life. You're different now. Verse 5, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. You died with him, then you raised with him. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That old person that was characterized by a body that liked to sin, maybe sometimes didn't even like to sin. You try to stop it, but you still like it too much and you're embroiled in this stuff. He's like, that guy is dead. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice he didn't say so that we would no longer sin ever, but there's a difference between the Christian that goes, ah, I stepped in it again, versus the person that wallows in it. They can't even smell the stench of it, versus the Christian that goes, ah, I need need to do better than that because that's not me anymore. It's not about being sinless. It's about not being enslaved to sin anymore. I promise these are brief, so let me try to hold to that. 1 Corinthians 12 is the next one. 
1 Corinthians 12. Now here, you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 12, and many of you, he's talking about spiritual gifts. Now again, we turn this into debates about gift of tongues and gift of healings and all this kind of stuff. Listen to Paul's actual point. You've been given many spiritual gifts. Why? How does Paul know that? Because you've been baptized. And he goes into verse 12. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, the arms, the hands, the feet, the nose, the eyes, everyone working together as a body, right? We are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. So he's, he's taking all these other things that used to be your identity and saying, this is your identity now. And if that's true, then we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, why is this verse here? This verse is here because he's trying to explain to the Corinthians why they've been empowered with spiritual gifts to serve the church. So that either looks like you used to use your own skills and talents for your own stuff. Now God is, uh, he's incorporated you into this body and now you're going to use those gifts and talents in a spiritually empowered way to bless the church. For some of us, it might mean you didn't have this category at all and now the spiritual gift is a new category. I think it can go either way. Some of us, spiritual gifts are our natural talents sort of injected with the uh, empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And for some of us, we wouldn't have been that at all, but the spiritual gift is something new that the Lord is giving us. But the point is, the point is, your new identity is serving the body. And how does Paul know that? Because you were baptized. That's his point. The baptism changed you to serve other people and, uh, through spiritual gifts. Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 27 to 28. Right here Paul says, for as, many as you, uh, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you were baptized, that means you put on Jesus Christ, verse 28. There is neither, here he does it again. It's not about Jew or Greek. It's not about slave or free. It's not about what status you are in the social structure. You can be the lowest, you can be the highest. You can live in the penthouse, you can live in the ghetto. Or what your ethnicity is, whether you belong with the Jewish people from the Old Testament or outside of that. What about male and female? Some people just can't even have a conversation without talking about male and female issues, right? We're so caught up in those identity categories and he's moving them all out of the way and saying you are all one in Christ Jesus. How are we one in Christ Jesus? Verse 27, you were baptized into Christ. That was the identity change. So all the Jew, Greek stuff, the, the slave free stuff, the male, female stuff, we've, it's not that we don't see distinctions, but making that your identity was left behind and what's in front of you now was living as one body into Christ. Then he goes on into chapter 4. We won't put this on the screen, but he goes on into chapter 4 where he argues from the book of Genesis that we're not slaves to the Old Testament law. But he doesn't mean that we, we don't live differently now, like we don't care about what we do. He goes on explicitly to say in Galatians 5, 6, Listen to this, Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Those Old Testament rules, they don't count for anything, but only faith working through love. So Paul's not saying, scrap the Old Testament law. God doesn't care what you do. You're a new creature. You're free to do what you want. No, you're free to do what he wants. Big difference. You couldn't do what God wanted before. Now you're free to do what God wants. It's not now I'm free to do what I want. 
That person is still stuck in the old person. Then he says in the very next verse, listen to how he encourages, but also challenges the Galatians. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So, so again, freedom, you're, you're baptized and you become this new person, this free person. And in your mind, if you go, if I'm free, now obeying Jesus Christ, that feels like enslavement. If that feels like enslavement to you and not freedom, you may not be saved. The safe person goes, I couldn't want what God wants before. I didn't want what God wanted before, and I couldn't do it no matter how much I tried. I kept slipping back into this old thing that I couldn't shake. But now that I'm in Christ, the chains have fallen off, and now I can do what? Do what Jesus tells me to do. And I can want it and like it and pursue it and grow in it, but I couldn't before. So he's concerned that if you were baptized, then you should be obeying God's truth. And then Galatians 5.13, real quick, for we were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So, so Paul's saying, if you are free, don't use that freedom as an excuse to do what I want. That's not freedom. You are now free to love one another. That's what you're free to do. And we couldn't love one another before because guess the only person who you love outside of Christ, yourself. And even the things I do for other people, I do them because it makes me feel good. And every time I hit send 2% to whatever charity the store is trying to make me click the button, I just want to get out of this line, please. And they're looking at me to see what percentage I hit. And I'm like, fine, 2% to that charity. I don't know what that charity is. Is it legit? Most of us, hey, we're doing it for some other reason. That's what it's like to try to live righteously outside of Christ. Ultimately, we're doing it for ourselves. But in Christ, we're free to do it for him and actually serve one another in love for the glory of God. Now, the fourth passage, we spent a little bit more time here, or the rest of our time will be here, and that's Colossians 2. Would you turn there? Colossians chapter 2. We'll just take about 15 minutes here. Colossians chapter 2. Famous passage on baptism. And why, why am I taking us here? For no different reason than I just took you to those other three verses. What does baptism mean? Baptism means you've been brought into Christ. What does it look like if you've been brought into Christ? What does it mean that you've been brought into Christ? You live into Christ. You live according to Christ as a result. And I should probably get this out of the way just in case there's any confusion here. That all, what you have to do is make a profession of faith publicly, get dunked in the water, come out, and God will just give a pass to whatever you do. Because, you know, you're in. So it doesn't matter. That, the person that thinks that way went through the motions but hasn't been baptized into Christ. They, were just, they just took a bath. The difference is the person who didn't just do the outward form, but that the outward form represents what has happened in that person spiritually. And what has happened in that person spiritually is not just guilt. It's not just feeling bad for the bad things I've done. It's change. It's freedom from the enslavement of those things. Remember when, when God came along Cain and he's like, hey man, sin wants, is crouching. It's like sin is like hiding behind a bush and wants to jump you like you're walking in an alley and you're getting mugged, okay? That's the imagery God is using. And he tells Cain, but you have to master it. God doesn't go, but I'm going to block it. 
So you'll never get jumped. No, you're going to get jumped. You're going to be tempted. You're going to be lured. You're going to be enticed. Just like your mom and dad were with that fruit. But Cain, you have to master it. What did Cain do? He didn't master it. What do we do when we read that? Stupid Cain. You're Cain. I'm Cain. Someone else has to come to master it because I can't. That's the point of Genesis. Not to judge Cain, but to go, man, Cain was so close to the garden. He probably remembers it maybe. I don't know. Like He's told what, what it was like. His parents are right there. Imagine story time with Adam and Eve tucking you in at night. I walked with God in the garden. What? What was that like? He couldn't master it because he was enslaved to sin. So Paul here in Galatians 2, he talks about this change. And here's the context. The context of this, where we're jumping in right now, is that Paul has been warning the believers in Colossae. That's why it's called Colossians. The Colossian believers. He's been warning them about doctrinal snares in the church. People have been making up rules. Okay, and telling them, hey, you got to follow these rules. you got to follow all these rules that we made up. And he's saying, no, that's a danger. You need to be careful with that. You don't have to live according to man-made rules and man-made regulations that Scripture doesn't bind us to. That's the context. That's what's happening here. And then his reasoning to snap them out of it, to go, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to live like that, is he's telling them, guys, that's how dead people act. Dead people act like that. Dead people pray prayers like, God, I know I messed up this week. I'm going to do so much better this week. Watch this. Dead people pray like that, and they're still dead. So not only do they give up these bad things and these bad things, and they clean up their speech, and they're not cussing anymore, and they wear more appropriate clothing now, and they hang out with better people now, and they're now they're attending church. Not only do they do all that stuff, but to prop themselves up even more, they take these extra vows and lay it on top of Christianity, like, I'm also going to do this, and I'm also going to stop doing that. And then to make themselves feel even better in a church setting, they start putting those rules on other people around them. And then other people are like, oh, I guess in order to be as holy as that person, I probably have to add these other things too. And Paul's saying, stop adding stuff. Stop adding stuff because that's how dead people act. They're not truly righteous in and of themselves, so they have to add a bunch of stuff to make them feel better about themselves and make them convince themselves that they're righteous. But you don't act like that because you're not dead. You're alive. You've been raised You were dead, but you're not dead anymore. Therefore, how you live for God is going to look different. And we're not adding religious rules. We're not adding regulations because those things can't transform you from the outside in. Christ has to transform you from the inside out. And that inner transformation, are you ready for a theology word? It's regeneration. Regeneration. Okay? I don't want people out there going, hey, do you know what regeneration is? No, I go to CFC. We were never taught. Regeneration means reborn you're reborn a regenesis a new beginning that's regeneration okay how are you regenerated what is regenerated if you're explaining to someone what baptism means you just explained regeneration you were made alive you were dead now you're made alive that's the inside work that rules and regulations can't do so check it out in Colossians 2 we're going to drop right down into verse 6 and here he explains that those who've received Christ Walk in Christ. If you've received Christ, walk in Christ. Live in him. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in 
thanksgiving. This is all about identity in Christ. Who are you rooted in? Christ. Who are you built up in? Christ. Who have you received? Christ. That's your new identity. And if that's your identity, that's how you act, that's how you think, that's what you do. But the mechanism for it is faith. You see that there? You've received Christ, so walk in him, already having been rooted and built up and established in the faith. So faith looks like something, right? You believe, you're changed, you receive Christ, and then what do you do, verse 6? You walk. You walk in Christ. Real faith in Christ means you walk in Christ. Walk is a way of life. It's not talking about whether you limp or what your gait looks like, if you need new shoes, or right? It's talking about not your physical walk. It's talking about your spiritual walk, your life, your, your way of life, how you live. It's rooted in faith in Christ, and it's expressed in the way you walk. Now, baptism means that we've received Christ by faith, and look how he continues in the next few verses in 8 through 15. Okay, This is the change that's happening inside of you so that you can walk different. The change inside of you is described in 8 through 15. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, because that's not going to save you, right? According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Why? For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. So he's saying all those rules and regulations, they can't fill you. You've already been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I'm not going to unpack each of these at length, but I take that to mean the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm, even though they do employ the rulers and authorities in the physical realm that crucified Jesus. That's true. But Satan and all his hosts, we saw this so often in Revelation. What is their power? What is their key? What is the key that Jesus had to snatch out of their hand? It's that key of death that is lorded over you. So that little lie that comes into your head that goes, you can't serve God. You're not good enough. Remember that thing you did? That's true. That's true. None of us can serve God on our own. And what Paul's saying, what was true before is now no longer true. So your response to that lie, the reason why it's a lie is not because it was never true. The reason why it's a lie is because it's now a lie when that's whispered into the ear of a Christian who has changed, transformed. How did Jesus disarm the authority so they, they, they can't accuse you anymore? So that whisper in your ear, that accusation, you can't serve God, you're not good enough, has, has now become a lie, okay? The way Jesus did it, he says it right there, is by canceling your record of debt on the cross. That's how he did it. Now, I want you to understand, it's not all of the debt before your baptism. It's not like you're living your life, you're living your life, you're sinning, you're sinning, 
And then you profess faith in Christ. You're baptized inwardly, okay? And then hopefully soon after that, the church baptizes you. And then from that point on, you're on your own. This record of debt was canceled, but from here point out, you have to, no. The whole debt, all the sins that you have done, are doing, and will do, have been canceled on that cross. I hope you understand that. It is full. It is sufficient. Jesus didn't die saying, I have started it. He died saying it is finished. That is your whole record of debt canceled in one fell swoop. And then he goes right to the rulers and authorities, have nothing on you now. They have nothing on you now. The only thing they have anything on is the dead person that is behind you. You're new. You are new. So it's not just about uh, forgiveness, which we have secured in Christ. It's not just about freedom, which we have secured in Christ, but it's also about formation. It's also about formation. So back to the thesis statement. If we've received Christ, we should walk in Christ. If you only write one thing down this whole time, what, is, what was his point? He said he only had one point. If you've received Christ, you walk in Christ. That is the point. That's what baptism is referring to. So here's what we can say about baptism. Baptism means that we've received Christ and now we walk in Christ. Anyone ask you about what is baptism? What is regeneration? Okay. It means we've, we've received Jesus Christ and now we live into Jesus Christ. So now we're going to see really quickly three results. In just a few minutes here, we're going to move fast through the text to see three results. If you've been, if you've received Christ, it looks like at least these three things. And the first thing we're going to see is that it sees, it, it looks like obeying Christ, not made up human teachings. And we see that in 16 to 23. I'll just read through it quickly. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That's hurting yourself. Asceticism is hurting is just a, a religious way of continuing to hurt yourself. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He's saying those human teachings can't change you. You need an inside change. That's what you need. So what he's saying here is that, the, he, that he's not saying rules are dumb. He's not saying rules are dumb. You should have rules. <laughs> you do have rules. Okay, but they're Christ's rules. They're the rules that are made explicitly clear in Scripture, not the made-up stuff that get added on top. He's saying made-up human rules are not binding. That's not what a baptized person lives like, making up a bunch of rules and adding rules to your life to make yourself look holier than other people. We can even put cautions in place for ourselves, but we can't bind others to those cautions. I might find it for myself. I don't think I should read that book, but I can't tell another Christian they're going to hell because they read the book. That's made up, okay? But that doesn't mean I shouldn't have some scruples about what I read. Understand what I'm saying? 
We are free from those things. But the regenerated person, the baptized person, understands that we serve the Lord. We don't serve ourselves. We do what he says, not made up stuff. So let me try to give a real quick application here because I think it makes, uh, helps a lot with regards to living the baptized life. An example of human teaching would be something like, a human teaching would be something like, a woman must not wear pants. Some of you maybe grew up in a church where that, that was a thing, right? It's still a thing in some places. And I don't want to necessarily debate that here, but let's just, I'm just throwing out an example where uh, that can be a human teaching that is pressed upon other people. Now, an example of someone using that as an excuse, as, as foolishly, would be somebody who either intentionally, a woman who intentionally tries to dress like a man. In other words, the reason why the woman is wearing pants is because she's not comfortable with her gender and she wants to look like a different gender. Scripture does have a verse on that. And that person shouldn't say, well, I don't have rules because I'm baptized. That's foolish because Scripture does reveal certain things. Or a woman who wears revealing pants or inappropriate pants and then cites Colossians 2 as an excuse to wear whatever you want, that's not good either because Scripture has some things to say about modesty. So I, I hope you're understanding what I'm saying. When Paul's saying, don't follow human rules and regulations, he's not saying, do whatever you want. He's saying, can we just stick to Scripture, please? Can, can we get, stick to, it's hard enough. You know, it's, it's difficult enough. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live according to what Scripture does say. We don't have to start talking about denim is outlawed, right? You know, th- these different kind of things that we add, you, whether you're allowed to watch movies or not. Can a Christian go to the movies? Some Christians are like, no, you cannot go to the movies. You cannot go to a movie theater, right? And then other Christians are like, well, as long as I watch something appropriate, right? So these are things that we don't get caught up in with regard to being a slave to human rules, but we don't use those as an excuse to not obey. And that's because of the next two reasons real quick. And we see that in the text right here. He says, if you're a believer, if you're baptized and you won't set your mind on earthly things, and this is one through 11. If you've been raised with Christ, back to baptism again, right? If you've been baptized, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not the things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So now he goes negative list, positive list. Here's the things you need to stop doing, need to stop thinking about, need to stop dwelling on, and here are the things that you do need to start dwelling on. Here's the, here's the don't do it list, and here's the definitely do it list. And he goes through that really quickly. Uh, in 5 through 11, here's the negative list. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So when he says, don't set your mind on earthly things, he doesn't mean don't set your minds on nature or mountains or streams because that's the earth. You know, just close your eyes and think about clouds and heaven. No, no. He's talking about sin. And he's just using earth and heaven as a metaphor. Okay? Put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice that he, he, he's picking on things that it takes real heart discernment to know whether you're tripping up in this stuff. The human teachings are usually like you're either in a theater or you're not in a theater. You're either wearing pants or you don't wear pants. Very external. And then he turns to very in, inside things. Sexual immorality. What? By physically sleeping with a person that I shouldn't be sleeping with? Well, it could just be passion or even the evil desire 
or it could just be a matter of covetousness that's deep inside the person. No one around you knows you're coveting that guy's wife, but you do. It's inside, right? So he's trying to get inside the person. That's what has to change. But now, or I said, verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now, see, he's talking about identity. Live out your identity, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not, there it is again, it's not Greek, it's not Jew, it's not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, put off all this bad stuff. How? Recognize your identity. That's how. That it's not that you're a Jew or that you're a Greek. It's not that you're a male or a female. It's that Christ is all and in all, and if you've been put in him, if you've been raised in him, then you can put off these things that don't look like Christ And instead, you can do the positive one, verse 12. Put on the things that do look like Christ. Put on then, and we'll just go to verse 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice that list of things that should characterize the Christian life begins with identity. You are God's chosen ones. You are God's holy people. See there in verse 12? You are God's beloved people. Comma, now do all this stuff. See? Inward change so that now you can do the different thing. Paul's saying you have the ability to not act like you used to act previous paragraph that's how you used to act you have the ability to act differently now notice how he emphasizes forgiveness i'll just pick a couple examples real quick but he emphasizes forgiveness right in verse 13 forgiving each other if somebody has a complaint you forgive each other as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive how many of us just feel like that's the thing that's impossible i could imagine in my mind stopping these certain sins but i can't imagine in my mind forgiving that guy And Paul's saying, yeah, you can't. The old person couldn't. But the person that's in Christ can. I mean, Philippians 4.13, we, our stomach turns sometimes when people misapply that and say, I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things. And it's on basketball sneakers. I can dunk because Jesus, like, look, I can't dunk. All right. And I don't think it's a spiritual flaw, right? Philippians 4.13 doesn't say you can do anything you want. But sometimes in reaction to that, we forget. We, we say, hey, buddy, it says I can do all things 
through Christ. Christ is the one. Christ is the power. That's true. But let's not delete the first part. I can do. So do it. If you were in Christ, you can do it. The most egregious sin, the the foulest thing that someone's committed against you, can you forgive it? In Christ, you can. And the way you do it is you lean into your identity. That's why he says, forgiving each other. How? As Christ has forgiven you. Your identity is a forgiven person. And to live out that identity, it's not to go at home and go, okay, I've got to forgive. I've got to forgive. Just train my mind on it and just act like it. No, it's not act like it. It's recognize that you've been forgiven an impossible debt. So as painful as that thing was against you, you can forgive that. Because you've been brought into union with Christ. And then what does your life look like? You're thankful. He says that twice. But, uh, and be thankful at the end of verse 15. And then we're teaching each other, we're admonishing each other, and we're singing songs to one another with thankfulness. I think a lot of what we need to see in the Christian life is gratitude. It's gratitude because like the Israelites, we tend to complain and we grumble And that's sometimes why we can't forgive. We're just like, that person did this. That person did this. And nothing they do will ever erase the fact that they did this thing to me. My job is like this, and I can't change it. The weather is like that, and I hate it. The taxes are at this level, and I can't stand it. This politician got elected, and I can't stomach it. There's a lot of things to complain about. But that's not what characterizes the Christian. What characterizes the Christian is thankfulness. For what? For God getting, out of us, getting us out of this mess, out of enslavement. God granting forgiveness that we couldn't get for ourselves and then conveying it to others through us. Brother and sister, I just want to encourage each and every one of us to pursue holiness, but not pursue it because you're trying to earn something from God and trying to become somebody that you're not. Do it because you are somebody that you weren't before. Right? We're not scrambling for, for inward change. We have an inward change in Christ. And we live it out. And I think for many of us, we just have to start by believing that. That thing that you can't stop doing or that thing that you're supposed to do that you're having a hard time starting, do it because you've been changed. And if we just wrestle with that, agree with that, believe that, I think that's what will propel us forward in living for Christ the way we're supposed to live for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the tremendous honor it is to unpack Scripture open your word to see what you have to say, to see how you are going to encourage us. Father, I pray that each and every one of us this morning are encouraged by what you say here, that those of us who are baptized into Christ can live into Christ. And as we close in this song of worship, we pray that you would uh, encourage us to live that out in ways that please you and honor you. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in a song.